Please take your Bibles and turn with me this evening to Lamentations. Chapter 1. We step into a brief study of the book of Lamentations over the next several weeks. And we do so because it is, in almost every way, so closely related to the context of Jeremiah, being written by the same prophet in regard to the same time in history, that to fail to preach it at this time, I believe, would do a disservice to our understanding of the text and the context within which to enter into uh, this particular um, book, this particular poetic book. As we always do when we begin a series, we're going to start with a book sermon. Gives us an opportunity to observe the general trends of the book, understand its background, and orient us unto its message. Today's book sermon is going to be a little bit different, however. Today we're going to draw a definitive link between lamentations as a fulfillment of a prophetic promise and the promise itself rooted in Moses' prophetic message to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 28. In other words, we're going to be drawing a direct link between Deuteronomy 28 as a prophetic promise and Lamentations' structure as almost a direct identification of all of the ways that God's promises in Deuteronomy 28 have come to pass. And this is a very interesting and unique thing as it relates to the book of Lamentations, one of numerous unique elements to this book that you probably didn't know and which perhaps will help you understand a little bit about how this book is structured and how it is written. Through this, we'll not only learn better uh, of, of the book, but we'll learn better of God's justice and also an understanding of his faithfulness in these things. So the book of Lamentations is broken up into, in our Bibles, five chapters. And that because we generally recognize five different Lamentations within his pages. I mentioned already just briefly, we'll talk about it a little bit more later, Lamentations is actually a book of poetry. It's a book of Hebrew poetry. Now, uniquely, it is not structured, it is not placed within the context of the English Bible in the poetry area. Typically, when we think of poetry, we think of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. That is the portion of Scripture that is poetic. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, Lamentations does find its way into that section. In our Bibles, uh, they chose to put it, it's so closely linked to Jeremiah, they chose to put it with Jeremiah and, and surrounding his prophecies rather than with the poetry. But make no mistake, and we'll see this so clearly in just a few moments, this book is a book of poetry. We approach it in the same way that we would approach the Psalms or Job or Ecclesiastes or the Song of Solomon, Proverbs. To a lesser extent, it's sort of poetry. It is poetry, but it's a proverbial poetry. So we approach that one just a little bit different than the others anyway. But we are approaching this. We must approach this as a book of poetry. Lam the Lamentations, however, these five Lamentations that we have here, one in each chapter, uh, they are connected one to another in a structure that we've seen before, particularly those of you who come on Tuesday nights have seen this structure and are familiar with what we call a chiastic structure or a Hebrew chiasm, taken from the Greek letter, in fact, chi or chi, which looks like an X. 
It describes a poetic structure in the, the relationship or in the form of A, B, C, B, A, where lines one and five are parallel, where lines two and four are parallel, and where line five is central. This is indeed the case as we look at the book. If you have a a outline. It's there for you. Of course, I have it up here on the screen as well. We see what we might understand to be a chiastic structure. In chapter 1, we find sorrow, the sorrow of Jerusalem as it relates to their captivity. In chapter 2, we see a description of the judgment of God in his anger. In chapter 3, we find Jeremiah's chapter both of sorrow, but also particularly of hope. And it is, in fact, this hope that is the very center of the book. And recall that as we discuss what a chiastic structure is intended to do, that ABCBA structure is intended to draw all of our attention to the center. It's intended to draw all of our, our attention to C. And in this case, as we'll see, C is unquestionably God's faithfulness and mercy. And that's important to the structure of the book. That's important to the message that we draw from the book of Lamentations. Chapter 4, again, we see God's anger. This time, uh, his judgment expounded. And then chapter 5, we find the sorrow of the remnant of God's people, those 5,000 or so that we talked about last week who were not killed. Now, it's also worth noticing that Lamentations is one of the books of what is called in Hebrew the Megalot. The Megalot contains five books. Song of Solomon, Ruth, Ecclesiastes, Esther, and Lamentations. Now, these books are read at various times of the year every year within Orthodox Judaistic circles. Song of Solomon is read at the Sabbath of Passover and often also the Passover Seder to remember God's love for the nation. Ruth is read on the morning of Pentecost every year, called Shavuot. Ecclesiastes is read on the Sabbath of the Feast of Tabernacles, called Sukkot. Esther is read during the Feast of Purim, or the Feast of Lots, as Esther is the account, of course, of the Feast's inception. And then Lamentations is read on the ninth day of Ab, which is the day when Solomon's temple and Herod's temple were both destroyed. They were both destroyed, believe it or not, on the exact same day, not on the same year, but on the same day of their respective years in history. Uh, the Babylonians, of course, destroying Solomon's temple and the Romans destroying Herod's temple. There's connections to be made even in that. So Lamentations is read every year in the Jewish community as a commemoration of their pain, a commemoration of their lamentation over the loss of their temple, both in the days of the Babylonians and in the days of the Romans. But oh, if they could only understand what the book actually is meant to say the hope and the expectation of the direction that the book calls attention. We also find the book is most definitely written in a Hebrew poetic style. We've spoken before regarding the concepts of Hebrew poetry, that Hebrew poetry, to the best of our understanding, is a poetry that is far more indicative of a rhyming of, of structure than it is a rhyming of sound. In modern English, when we think of poetry, whether that be music or whether that be actually just, just direct poetry, uh, it tends to rhyme in sound. 
Roses are red, violets are blue, something, something, something that rhymes with blue, right? And it rhymes with blue because we want to, because violets are blue, right? And so we have rhyme of sound. We sing these songs, these hymns, and if the hymn doesn't quite get close enough to sounding like it rhymes, we say, wow, that's kind of a really bad line there. That, one, that, that one's a stretch. Because we need it to rhyme. We need it to rhyme in sound. That's how, Hebrew po- uh, that's how English poetry, that's how English songs work. Not Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry is more of a parallel, parallelism of structure or parallelism of thought more than it is a parallelism of sound. Hebrew poetry puts thoughts in parallel in order to draw one's mind to certain concepts or to define those concepts either by comparison or by contrast. Now, we do have some forms of poetry that are like this, things like the haiku, right? The haiku does not rhyme, but it has a definitive structure that is intended to draw to a point. Now, there are, however, some definitive structural elements of the book that are worth noting. First, if you take a look at, if you have your Bible open, notice Lamentations chapter 1 has 22 verses. Notice Lamentations chapter 2 has 22 verses. Notice Lamentations chapter 3 has 66 verses. Notice Lamentations chapter 4 has 22 verses. Notice Lamentations chapter 5 has 22 verses. And take note that in the Hebrew alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet consists of 22 characters. And so we have a definitive structure that is arranged here. And thus we know, we know exactly in this book where the divisions of the book are supposed to be. No question marks on this one. 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, 22 verses in chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5. Chapter 3. It's made up of 66 verses, which happens to be 22 times 3. 22 broken up into 3 section, or 22 3 times is 66. Allow me to take a moment and to explain to you why this is. If we, uh, we, we've had this discussion before about Psalm 119. If you ever look at Psalm 119, you'll notice that Psalm 119 is broken up into uh, strophes, they're poems, strophes, and they are labeled according to the Hebrew alphabet. There are, in fact, 22 of these divisions, and each one has eight verses, and they are labeled. So if you were to go to Psalm 119, the first eight verses would have above it a Hebrew aleph, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Then the next eight verses would have above it a Hebrew bet, aleph, bet, alphabet, right, which is the second letter in the Hebrew language, and then down through Gimel, Dalet, and so on and so forth. Within each of those strophes, within each of those eight verses, every line of that strophe, so underneath Aleph, every single line in the Hebrew begins with an Aleph. And underneath Bet, if you were to go to to a Hebrew Bible and you were to look at the beginning of each verse, the beginning of each line would begin with a Bet. And then if you were to go to Gimel and you were to look at the first letter on each line of those eight verses, they would begin with a gimel and dalet and so on. And so we find here a poetic structure, uh, an, an acrostic type structure, and it's intended not only to be a, a poetic structure of sorts, but it's also intended perhaps to aid in memorization. Have you ever done that before? Have you ever had some sort of acrostic 
that you've put together in your mind in order to remember several terms. So if you have five terms to memorize and, and, and so you, you take the first letter of each of those terms and you uh, make up some silly concoction of a sentence in order to remember the first letter of each term so that you can spit it out when you need to spit it out. That is possibly what's going on here. Very similar structure to Lamentations. So in Lamentations chapter 1, I give you here, uh, uh, there we go, I give you uh, the first three verses of Lamentations chapter 1. And do take note that Hebrew is written from right to left, not left to right. So you have to read it from right to left, which is why the one, the two, and the three are on the right side, not the left side, which is why we are we are right justified instead of left justified. All I really need you to see here is that you notice that verse number one starts with an olive. You can take my word for that. Verse number two starts with the bet. Verse number three starts with a gimel and so on and so forth. On Tuesday nights, we've not worked on the Hebrew alphabet, only on the Greek. Um, but you, you see this here and it goes on that way throughout the chapter. 22 verses in the chapter, 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. You would see the same thing if you went to chapter 2, if you went to chapter 4, and if you went to chapter 5. 22 lines, 22 verses, each verse beginning with the corresponding letter. Oh, excuse me. Chapters, that's just chapters 1, 2, and 4. Chapter 5 still has 22 lines, 22 verses, but it does not follow that pattern. It becomes very unique in that regard, and we will perhaps give a few ideas as to why um, when we get there. Then if you look at chapter 2, I mean chapter 3, I mentioned already it's not 22 verses long, it's 66 verses long. And I already noted that 66 is divisible by 22 by a factor of 3. 66 is three sets of 22. And what we find in chapter 3 is that the book contains exactly that. The first three verses begin with Aleph. The next three verses begin with Bet. The next three verses after that begin with Gimel. The next three verses after that begin with Dalit and so on. Now three, as we know, is a very important number in the Hebrew. So you see here, I've kind of jammed this together, but verse one, verse, uh, verse, one, verse two, verse three, verse four, verse five, verse six. Aleph, uh, Aleph, 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 Bet, 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 and so on and so on. So each has three olives, then three baits, then three gimel, then three dollars. Hebrew does not have an emphatic form of their words. In English, if we want to make a word emphatic, we'll add an ending. Take the English word high. I jumped high. Then one of my daughters would say, well, I jumped higher. Then another one of my daughters, particularly, would say, well, I jumped highest, Right? I jumped high. Well, I jumped higher. Well, I jumped highest. We have three degrees of that word based upon the ending that, that bring us to a level of emphasis or that bring us to a level of, uh, of, of addition. Hebrew did not have those sorts of endings. So what they did in order to add emphasis was that they emphasized through repetition. And in much the same way, we generally find three levels, one, two, and three. So three being the most emphatic way that one could mention something in the Hebrew language. Thus, when we're in Isaiah chapter 6 and the angels, the seraphim are around the throne of glory, they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. They didn't say the most holiest, right? Because they don't have that in their language. So what did they do? They repeated it three times. Holy, holy, holy. That's the emphatic. And here we have a situation where each 
letter is repeated three times. It is once again intended for us to understand that there's something special about chapter 3. There's something emphatic about chapter 3. And this should not surprise us because we've also talked about the Hebrew chiastic structure. And the whole chiastic structure directs us toward chapter 3, right? A, B, C, B, A. It's directing us toward the C, the middle. So now we have this recognition of the importance of chapter 3. We see it in the fact that there's a chiastic structure. We see it in the fact that there is this unique poetic structure in the acrostic form. Now let's talk, just before we we dig into the next element of, of comparing it to Deuteronomy, about Jeremiah. The book is not credited directly, but there's little doubt that it was penned by the prophet Jeremiah. And it's penned as a follow-up to his words, but as I mentioned already, it's more than that. The point is to show all of the ways that Jerusalem failed the Lord, failed to follow him, to show the dramatic and prophesied consequences of the sin that they chose, and most importantly, to reflect, once again, hope in a future restoration. All of this to show the consequences of sin and the hope that comes from repentance. And that's what we're going to see as we study the book more broadly this evening. And in light of that, I'm actually, as I mentioned, not going to focus our time per se on the content of Lamentations. Normally I walk through the book and I just summarize the book. I'm not going to do that this evening. Instead, I want to focus our attention on the content of Deuteronomy 28. And then I want to show you how the promises of God some 900 years before the captivity played themselves out in the siege of Babylon between 588 and 586 B.C. So I'm going to walk you through Deuteronomy. You can feel free to turn to Deuteronomy 28 if you'd like. Um, And then I do have on the back of your outline, on the back page, there is a correlation uh, between the verses that you can refer to if you would so desire. So in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says this, And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments, which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. So God begins in Deuteronomy 28 by telling the nation that if they will obey him and keep his commandments, then he will bless them unlike any nation that the world has ever seen. And this blessing would, as God describes it, overtake them. It would, it, it would pour over them. It would, it would be the very essence of their identity if they would only hearken to the voice of the Lord. And so God spends the first 14 verses of Deuteronomy 28 telling them what these blessings would be for obedience. I'm going to skip those particularly because that's not actually the essence of the content of, of Lamentations. Lamentations is not going through all of the ways that God uh, has blessed them for their obedience because they didn't obey, right? We're, we're, we're not quite there yet in history. So what he's doing instead is going through the cursings. And those begin in verse 15. In verse 15, we see God shift to what will happen 
if they choose not to obey the Lord. So God says, But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. If they fail to obey, if they choose to rebel, then just as the blessings would overtake them in obedience, so the cursings would overtake them in rebellion. And then God walks through the beginning of a prophetic promise, a progression of judgments that would surely come upon them if they rebel. And take note, these are prophetic promises. We find this ironically as we, as we continue, if we were to continue into Deuteronomy 30, that God says that these cursings would come upon them. He was prophesying that they would not obey him. So first, in verses 16 through 20, God describes that everything they attempt in the land, if they, do not wa- if they walk in rebellion, if they do not walk according to the word of the Lord, would be cursed. Their cities would be cursed. Their fields would be cursed. Their storage of goods would be cursed. Their health would be cursed. Their crops would be cursed. Their flocks and their herds would be cursed. All of these things would come upon uh, them. Uh, this great cursing would come upon them for their rebellion. And then God goes on to describe many, many sorrows illness and plagues, losses in battle to their enemies, great droughts and famines. And all the while, the heavens being like brass, the Lord refusing to hear their cries. Now, all of these things relate to their sorrows in the land. But somewhere around verse 25, we see a description of judgment that begins to look very similar to the siege of Jerusalem leading to the days of Jerusalem's overthrow. So we read in Deuteronomy chapter 25, 28, verse 25, The Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. Thou shalt go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them and shalt be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. Then we find in Lamentations chapter 1, verse 6, a description in poetic fashion, and, it's, and this is written. From the daughter of Zion, all her beauty is departed. Her princes are become like hearts that find no pasture, and they are gone without strength before the pursuer. So we see this correlation. The nation being smitten and fleeing seven ways before their enemies. Seven, of course, being the biblical number of perfection. Every way is the idea there, right? The concept of them fleeing in every direction. And Jerusalem laments in Lamentations 1 verse 6, that their princes went out without strength before them that pursued them, that their princes fled and were pursued by their enemies. Then we see in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 26, And thy carcass shall be meat unto all the fowls of the air and unto all the beasts of the earth, and no man shall fray them away. Speaks of a day when the bodies of the dead would lay on the ground and there would be no man left to take them away and bury them. Now we read that regularly in Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah prophesying that there would come a day when there would be no one left in the land to to bury the dead because the devastation will be so great. And we find this desolation lamented in Lamentations 5 verse 18, declaring that Mount Zion is desolate because of the mountain of Zion, which is desolate, the foxes walk upon it. We see again in Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 30, Thou shalt betroth the wife, and another man shall lie with her. Thou shalt build an house, and thou shalt not dwell therein. Thou shalt plant a vineyard, and shalt not gather the grapes thereof. 
three things being taken and possessed by others that were the possession of Israel, that Israel had possessions and others took their possessions and used their possessions. First, their wives, who God prophesied in Deuteronomy that they would marry, but who would lie with another. We see the remnant contemplate this sorrow in Lamentations 5, verse 11. They ravished the women in Zion and the maids in the cities of Judah. But it's not only the first half of this verse that the remnant accounts. Lamentations chapter 5, verse 2, our inheritance is turned to strangers, our houses to aliens. Their houses and their lands being turned over to strangers, just as God had promised, that they would build their houses but not live in them, that they would plant vineyards, but they would not gather the grapes of their vineyards. So the remnant laments in the day when they realized that God's curses had come to pass. Continuing to walk through Deuteronomy 28, we come to verse 32, where God writes through Moses, Thy sons and thy daughters shall be given unto another people, and thine eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all the day long, and there shall be no might in thine hand. God promised in his day that if they were to disobey the Lord, the sons and daughters of the nation would be given to another people. And as we read of Jerusalem's lamentation in chapter 1, verse 5, they recall this very thing. Her adversaries are the chief. Her enemies prosper, for the Lord hath afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children are gone into captivity before the enemy. This promise would be reiterated both in Deuteronomy and in Lamentations, showing the kind of parallels that we might expect if one was a reflection of another. Moving on in Deuteronomy 28, verse 41. Moses writes, Thou shalt beget sons and daughters, but thou shalt not enjoy them, for they shall go into captivity. Once again, we see that same idea. In Lamentations 1, verse 18, The Lord is righteous, for I have rebelled against his commandment. Here I pray you all people, and behold my sorrow, my virgins and my young men are gone into captivity. What about Deuteronomy 28, verse 37? And thou shalt become an astonishment, a proverb, and a byword among all nations, whither the Lord shall lead thee. It was promised in Deuteronomy 28 that the nation would become a byword. They would be scorned. They would be scoffed. As the righteous judgment of God is proclaimed in Lamentations 2, we find this reality in verse 15. All that pass by clap their hands at thee. They hiss and wag their head at the daughter of Jerusalem, saying, is this the city that men call the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? That city which was once called the joy of the whole earth had become a byword among the nations. Deuteronomy 22, verse 44, He shall lend to thee, and thou shalt not lend to him. He shall be the head, and thou shalt be the tail. We see a promise in Deuteronomy that the enemies of Israel would lend and not borrow, would be the head, and, not, and, and Israel would be the tail. That they would be the leaders, that they would have control that they would be the ones that have the money and the power, that Israel would be submissive. They would be on the submissive end of the relationship to other nations. Don't tell cats that their tails are supposed to submit to them, but it is true in a metaphorical sense. We had a cat once who had, had a hard time believing his tail was even attached to him. But that's the idea behind this metaphor, right? The idea behind this metaphor is that you're the head and not the tail, or you're the tail and not the head. The, the tail is following the head. The tail is subject to the whims of the head. 
And so we see in Lamentations 1, verse 5, her adversaries are the chief. Her enemies prosper. Israel would be submissive. A reality which, going back to the very first verses of the first Lamentation, are reflected in Israel's captivity. Deuteronomy 28, 48. Therefore shalt thou serve thine enemies, which the Lord shall send against thee, in hunger and in thirst and in nakedness and in want of all things, and he shall put a yoke of iron upon the neck, thy neck until he have destroyed thee. God promised in his day of prophetic zeal that the nation in their disobedience would face great hunger, great thirst, great lack. So Lamentations 5 verse 10 says, Our skin was black like an oven because of the terrible famine. The remnant thinks back upon the days of sorrow. They recall when they faced tremendous physical issues because of their deep hunger and the famine that they were in. Recall back in Jeremiah when they were debating whether or not Jeremiah would even get bread because the famine was so bad in the land. What about Deuteronomy 28, verse 50? A nation of fierce countenance, which shall not regard the person of the old, nor show favor to the young. Deuteronomy says that in the day the young and the old would die together, there would be no regard for the advancement of age or the innocence of of children. Uh, They would not say, well, these people are too old to fight or these children are too young to fight, so let's spare them. They would kill them like any others. So we read in Lamentations 22, or excuse me, 221, the young and the old lie on the ground in the streets. My virgins and my young men are fallen by the sword. Thou hast slain them in the day of thine anger. Thou hast killed and not pitied. The same idea would be reflected in Lamentations chapter 5, verse 2. Princes are hanged up by their hand. The faces of elders were not honored. One of the most shocking and devastating of all God's promises to the nation if they were to rebel was found in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 53. In Deuteronomy 28, 53, God said this, And thou shalt eat the fruit of thine own body, the flesh of thy sons and of thy daughters, which the Lord thy God hath given thee, in the siege and in the straightness, wherewith thine enemies shall distress thee. We see it again in Deuteronomy 28, verses 56 and 57. I'll just read that portion at the bottom. For she shall, uh, I'll start, I'll just do verse 57. And toward her young one that cometh out from between her feet and toward her children, which she shall bear, for she shall eat them for want of all things secretly in the siege and straightness, wherewith thine enemy shall distress thee in, the, in thy gates. These verses speak of a time in the nation where starvation is so bad that the mothers begin eating their own children to survive. Now the Bible only narrates this happen during one siege, and that siege was in the northern kingdoms of Israel when Syria had besieged them, where the king walked through the streets and women were fighting. And the king says, what are you fighting about? And they say, I need your help because yesterday we ate my child and the woman said today we'd eat hers. And now she won't give me her child. She's gone and hid her child. Asking the king to make her give the child up so that they can live. Terrible, terrible thought. Terrible, uh, just unimaginable. We never see that recorded as it relates to the nation of Judah in the Kings or in the Chronicles or even in Jeremiah. But we do see it recorded in Lamentations. We find two verses that reveal that this atrocity did indeed take place during the siege of Jerusalem by Babylon. Lamentations chapter 2 verse 20. Behold, O Lord, and consider to whom thou hast done this. Shall the women... Eat their fruit and children of a span long? 
Shall the priest and the prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? And then again in Lamentations 4.10, the hand of the pitiful women have sodden their own children. They were their meat in the destruction of the daughter of my people. Notice both of these verses are lamentations during the God's anger portion, chapter 2, chapter 4. And in this context, Jeremiah writes twice of women consuming their own children in their desperation and starvation. And so it is that something that we did not see in any of the historical accounts, and we might understand why, is linked in, in lamentations. Why? Most likely so that we can understand. Understand the relationship between God's promises in Deuteronomy 28 and the realities of the siege that ended in 586 B.C. One final verse that reflects these parallels, and then we'll cheer things up a little bit. Deuteronomy 28, verse 65. And among these nations shalt thou find no ease, neither shall the sole of thy foot have rest, but thee, Lord, shall give, but the Lord, excuse me, shall give thee there a trembling heart and failing of eyes and sorrow of mind. God promised that among the nations of their shame and captivity, they would find no ease. They would find no rest. And indeed, Lamentations 5, that's the lamentation of the remnant. We see a testimony of this very thing. Lamentations 5, 5, they say, our necks are under persecution. We labor and have no rest. Now we've walked through all of these examples to show what the Lord through Jeremiah is likely attempting to do in the book of Lamentations. What the Lord is likely attempting to do is connect the dots between Deuteronomy 28 and the reality of the captivity, the captivity in the days of Jeremiah. But all is not lost in this connection. All is not for naught in that connection. You say, wow, God had promised that all of these evil things were going to come to pass. And here we read in the siege of Jerusalem and in the pages of Lamentations, and we see just how closely linked they are. It is without question that God's promises of cursing came to pass to the nation of Israel. But why this is not only a connection of sorrow is because Deuteronomy 28 is not the last chapter of Deuteronomy. Oh, I got a tingle down my spine just thinking about that. We skip ahead to Deuteronomy 30. And bear with me here. We need to read a chunk. We need to read a chunk here because this is the point of Lamentations. And this is the point of Deuteronomy 2. So stick with me. Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 14. And it shall come to pass when all these things are come upon thee, the blessings and the curse, which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath driven me. Remember, that's the end of the promise. The end of the promise is you'll be scattered. So God says, when all of this happens to you, notice the prophetic idea of this is going to happen to you. Verse 2, And shalt return unto the Lord thy God, and shalt obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children with all thine heart and with all thy soul, that then 
The Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. If any of thine be driven out unto the utmost part of heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee and from thence will he fetch thee. And the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed and thou shalt possess it and he will do thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. And the Lord thy God will put all these curses upon thine enemies and on them that hate thee, which persecuted thee. And thou shalt return and obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments, which I command thee this day. And the Lord thy God will make thee plenteous in every work of thine hand, in the fruit of thy body and in the fruit of thy cattle and in the fruit of thy land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over thee for good as he rejoiced over thy fathers. If thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in the book of the law and if thou turn unto the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul. For this commandment which I command thee this day it is not hidden from thee neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that thou should say who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that thou should say, who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very nigh unto thee in thy mouth and in thy heart that thou mayest do it. At the beginning of this chapter, God explicitly states that all of the blessings and cursings would come upon them, that they would be scattered. But then God speaks of a return when the nation seeks the Lord with all of its heart and all of its soul, when God turns their captivity and has compassion on them and regathers them unto himself, and God would destroy their enemies and God would circumcise their hearts, bringing about in them all of the promises that he had made and ushering in a kingdom where he himself would rule over them. And that's the point. Jeremiah writes the words of lamentation and shows how everything that God said in Deuteronomy 28 would surely, did surely come to pass. Can there be any doubt then that everything God said in Deuteronomy chapter 30 will surely come to pass? If, if Deuteronomy 28 was fulfilled to a T, can there be any doubt that Deuteronomy 30 will as well? Can there be any doubt that there's coming a regathering? that God's faithfulness has not left his people. Jeremiah writes these words of lamentations and shows these things to be true. But their hope must rest in the fact that those curses are objectively and definitively not the end of their story. Because Deuteronomy 28 is not the last chapter in Deuteronomy. To this day, the promises of Deuteronomy have yet, Deuteronomy 30 have yet to be fulfilled in Israel. And that because they have rejected their Messiah. They rejected him the first time around. Their Messiah came with a promise of a kingdom and they rejected it and they killed him. But what was and is to this day a stumbling block to the Jews has become the very power of God in the lives of those who believe. And there's coming a day, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 11, when by God's grace, the nation of Israel will be regathered will accept Jesus of Nazareth as their Messiah, will have their hearts circumcised and will enter into the promises of their Lord. And this is what we come back to in the structure of Lamentations. 
Remember at the beginning of our time, we saw how the book of Lamentations is organized into this chiasm. And this reflects a parallel through chapters 1, chapter 5, chapter 2, chapter 4, all focusing in on chapter 3. So then, what is in Lamentations 3? Lamentations 3, verses 21 through 32. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. He sitteth alone and keepeth silence because he hath borne it upon him. He putteth his mouth in the dust. If so be, there may be hope. He giveth his cheek to him that smiteth him. He is filled full with reproach, for the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. The book of the Lamentations is not a fun book, but it points to a blessed end that it is of the Lord's mercies that Israel was not wholly consumed, that these mercies are new every morning, that God in his faithfulness broke them down just as he promised he would, but he did not break them down in order that he might destroy them, but he broke them down in order that he might build them up again. Then the vessel which was marred in the hand of of the potter, the vessel which was made of clay was marred in the hand of a potter, but he made it again another vessel. Did we not see that in Jeremiah? As it seemed good to the potter to make it. The promises for God's people don't end with brokenness and destruction. The promises of God's people end with healing and triumph and joy and righteousness. And that's the point of the book of the Lamentations. And perhaps you are sitting this evening and you feel somewhat broken. You're tired. You're beaten down. You're wearied in body or in soul. Things have been difficult. Maybe they've been difficult circumstantially in your life. You've been going through a great deal. Our church has gone through a great deal. Maybe you're broken down in spirit and there's some personal struggle and you're tired and you're weary and you're discouraged. Maybe the chastening hand of the Lord is upon you. Maybe the purging hand of the Lord is upon you. Maybe the trying hand of the Lord is upon you and you don't understand and you're like Job. You say, I've searched for him up and down and left and right, but I can't find him. And as Job said, but he knoweth the way that I take and when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. So too does the book of Lamentations draw us unto this assurance that God's mercies are new every morning. That God will not cast off forever because His mercy endureth forever. Remember this evening that God loves you so much that He sent His only begotten Son to die that you might live. Remember that Jesus Christ came as the epitome 
of the, the fulfillment of God's promises. And though we've not seen all of them come to pass, at least as it relates to Israel, that we have been ushered into that blessedness through the spirit of the living God. This is not a God that is looking for a reason to destroy and tear down. Much to the contrary, this is a God that is looking truly for a reason to restore, to redeem, and to build up. And as with Israel, so with us. God said in Deuteronomy 28, 29, 30 that these things come to those who love the Lord. The Bible tells us that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. The Bible tells us that God responds with mercy to those who come to him with repentance. That God responds with mercy to those who come with submission and humility. That God blesses those who obey. So while the book is called Lamentations, it is in fact a book of hope. It's a book of remembrance of God's faithfulness. When we sing that song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, of course, comes from this passage of Scripture in Lamentations 3. We often think of God's faithfulness and we say, God, it's been a good day. You've been faithful. God's faithfulness doesn't end at the good day, though, does it? Deuteronomy 28 brought about a number of promises of cursing. Lamentations reminds us that all of those cursings were God's faithfulness. But praise God that on the tail end of those cursings were deeper promises. Promises of blessing. Promises of restoration. Promises of hope. Remembrance of God's faithfulness. And may it be that for us this evening. May this reality of God's faithfulness, the whole point of the book of Lamentations, may this reality carry us through these chapters of sorrow and land us in that center with hope. May it bring us to that point of remembrance of God's mercy, even in the difficult times. Remembrance of God's love for us, even in the difficult times. Remembrance that even when we're going through difficult times, God has not ceased to be faithful. Remembering, as the psalmist said in Psalm 30, verse 5, for his anger endureth but a moment. In his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.